G'day, I'm Bob Carr. I'm Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to, the, to this podcast. Today I'm joined by James Lawrenson, who's the Deputy Director of ACRI, and we'll be talking about his new research report, Do the Claims Stack Up? Australia Talks China. The report examines recent Australian media discourse on China, including the China opportunity, the China challenge, China threat, China angst, and China panic. I think that's the one I'll settle on, China panic. And it assesses the evidence base, the evidence base for various claims made about China and Chinese influence and interference in Australia. Welcome to the program, James. Good to be with you, Bob. So the rise of China is the reality of our times and a bit of a challenge for Australia that there's this new strategic setting, this new economic influence, and that 1.2 million Australians have got Chinese heritage. Uh, all of a sudden, China's there occupying a space it didn't occupy uh, years ago. What, what are some of the modes of Australian thinking about the enormous presence and the rapid emergence of this presence of modern China. Well, one you just mentioned, Bob, you mentioned the China challenge. And um, that's one of the ways that China gets discussed in Australia. And I, I think it's a legitimate way for it to be discussed. The, the reality is, is as China has risen, um, if you look at some of its behaviour, they present challenges to Australia's interests and certainly to our values. could run through a couple of them. Um, in 2016, China rejected an arbitration decision in the South China Sea from an international tribunal. Um, we could also talk about the militarisation of assets in the South China Sea. Um, one that's getting a lot of attention now, for good reason in my view, is the extrajudicial detention of China's minority Uyghur population in Xinjiang. I mean, these are all challenging for Australia and they are based on facts and evidence. So that's one way it gets discussed. Um, it also gets discussed in terms of an opportunity. Now we do $200 billion worth of two-way trade with China. Now I'm an economist and one thing I'm going to tell you is that every dollar of trade is voluntary. So it means those $200 billion of trade reflect a decision by an Australian company or Australian household that engagement with China actually makes them better off. So that's another way China gets talked about. Um, but what this report deals with specifically is over the last few years, we've seen a bit of a drift away from the China challenge, I think, to one that's more about a China threat, a China angst, or as you've said, China panic. And the distinguishing feature of that is that it's a discourse, a way of talking about China that unlike the China challenge and unlike the China opportunity, it's less connected, sometimes very, very loosely connected indeed to facts and evidence. Well, I thought you settled on one very powerful example of a panic being set off. Um, a government website comes down, I think it was the census Correct. website, and all of a sudden Peter Jennings of Aspie, if I remember correctly, is pronouncing on television, this is China. China hackers, China hackers were, were his, was his judgment. Um, and look, if he had have just held off for 24 hours, um, he would have got the facts, which, which were that it had nothing to do with hacking and it had nothing to do with China. Um, still, he leapt to print um, with that accusation, with that claim that wasn't supported by any facts and evidence at all. Um, look, some of these China panic does take that form where you've got people saying stuff that just runs completely contrary to facts and evidence or there's no facts and evidence at all. Other claims are loosely connected to facts and evidence, but when you examine the entirety of the evidence base, um, you know, there's, they, they still form a bit of a stretch. Yeah, well, in that category, I would play something I've commented on many times, and that's this issue of campaign donations. 
uh, to Australian political parties. Um, when the dust settles, there have been two prominent Chinese figures, one of them, uh, uh, Zhang Mo Wang, who was the donor to UTS that enabled ACRI to be established, although he no longer funds UTS or is a, a member of UTS, uh, a member of uh, ACRI's uh, Chairman's Council, that is, he, he doesn't fund uh, any part of UTS or any part of ACRI. But he was a big donor to Australian political parties and so was Chow Chuck Wing, who's been a donor to Australian universities as well, including, uh, again, in the spirit of full declaration, uh, this university. So um, two, two very big donors, but it gets a bit more complicated when you look at the detail. Chow Chuck Wing is an Australian citizen. So right, no for 20 a, years. Yeah, yeah, so he's no more a foreign donor than uh, Dick Pratt, the late Dick Pratt, or Frank Lowy. Um, or other overseas-born Australian citizens who've done well in business and give to political parties can be described as foreigners. Um, and another thing, when the dust settles, uh, apart from these two, there's not a lot of Chinese money flowing. Indeed, I think you point out, 300 Chinese companies in the Australia-China Chamber of Commerce um, who aren't donors to Australian political parties. Yeah, interestingly though, Bob, some people make it out as though there is. Um, earlier, a couple of months ago, Rory Medcalf, the director of the National Security College at the Australian National University, stood up in Washington and said, and I quote, a big part of the problem is that Australian political parties have become dependent on foreign donations and there's been a steady increase in Chinese donations. Well, one of the things I do in that, this report is fact check that. It turns out both of those claims are simply wrong. Um, so you know, you've raised this issue, there's only two, and I'm saying, in addition to that, I'm saying yes, and some of the other claims that have been made around political donations are simply factually incorrect. Now, I don't know how that happens when all these facts and all the evidence is, in fact, on the public record. So with the uh, Chinese donations, 300 companies here, state-owned and private, most of them private, um, in the Australia-China Chamber of Commerce, and they're simply not in the habit of giving to political parties. If there were a drive out of Beijing to subvert Australian politics, to build Chinese influence, we might say Chinese Communist Party influence, by swamping Australian political parties with donations, wouldn't there be a pattern from those 300 companies? Wouldn't you find that um, half of them, at least three-quarters of them, you'd think, would be signing big checks to the Liberal Party and the Labor Party and the National Party each and every year. Right. Well, let, let me tell you what I found out based on academic <coughs> research. This is done by some scholars at the University of Melbourne. They found in the last political election campaign, total foreign donations, not just Chinese, total foreign donations accounted for only 2.6% of total political donations, right? No, it's 90, more than 97% is coming from domestic sources. They also documented that there was no steady increase in Chinese donations over time. And... When they defined Chinese donations, they included people like you said, Chao Chak Wing. So they defined it very generously indeed. That is, included even people who were Australian citizens. So out of that data, how you can tell a story that Australian political parties are highly dependent on foreign donations and there's been this steady increase in Chinese donations in particular, um, I have no idea. So look, what I wanted to do in this report is document these claims, document the facts and evidence, and look, that involves calling out some loose comments and comments that are simply wrong from some pretty senior commentators in this country who I think should know better. Landbridge, a Chinese entity, private-owned company, bought the port of Darwin 
Um, someone, someone corrected me and said you really ought to be describing it as a wharf. It, it hardly warrants the description port. But that set off, and, and you detail it, I've got to say, in, in pretty tedious length, the commentary. <laughs> I mean, a few pages. One of the values of the report is that you just detail with footnotes what was said. And, and there seemed to be there about three pages which detailed the shock and horror of response of uh, a lot of commentators to the fact that a Chinese entity owns the wharf in Darwin. Um, but then you've got another section where you look at the evidentiary base, and it turns out, in this case, the Department of Defence, ASIO, um, the uh, Defence Forces themselves, all said there is not the remotest security concern here. Uh, they... The, the ownership of the port or the wharf can't invite in Chinese warships. The Australian government, as always, determines what foreign warships come to our ports. And one of, one of the Australian spies said you, you could learn more about, more about comings and goings by observing uh, the port of Darwin from a fish and chip shop than you could by being built into its ownership. Right. So, look, sometimes Australia's security agencies raise concerns, and I think we need to treat those seriously, right? So I'm certainly not trying to be disrespectful to the concerns of Australia's security agencies. But as you pointed out, in this case, there was no debate amongst our Defence Forces, the Secretary of Defence, um, ASIO. They were unanimous in agreeing that this wasn't an investment that should be opposed on, on security grounds. And yet you had this raft of commentary making that exact accusation. Um, so look, I think uh, it's useful to document those sorts of claims um, when they're plainly reject rejected once again by the facts and the evidence. Chinese students, I thought, were dealt with very harshly by the Australian media. Um, during that China panic of two, well, this is my terminology, China panic of 2017, raft of headlines, raft of stories. John Garner being quoted saying, uh, "China's exporting to our universities um, uh, an ethno chauvinism." Um, uh, reports that Australian universities have been intimidated into what uh, have been called on to uh, rebuke lecturers, discipline lecturers for things they said in the classroom that Chinese students found objectionable. You actually pared back all these layers of commentary and found. Well, we looked at this, all the stories that, that made these accusations that the Chinese students were waging a war, attacking their lecturers, being forced, uh, Australian academics being forced to apologise. And once you dig into all the commentary, uh, it turned out there were only four incidents. Uh, now, that's not very many when you consider that last year there were more than 133,000 Chinese students at Australian universities. I can guarantee you that amongst 133,000 domestic students, you would get a whole lot more than four incidents of students challenging their lecturers. And perhaps just as importantly, not in a single case, that is not in any of those four incidents, was classroom discussion shut down or freedom of expression threatened. So put all that together... Was there a single case where a university administration required a lecturer to withdraw or apologise? So a, 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 at the Monash University, no, not apologise. The, the university itself undertook a review and they withdrew the assessment that the lecturer had put in place. So that's the extent of it. The lecturer certainly wasn't asked to apologise. Yes, but people would have formed the view, looking at the newspaper stories, that somehow Chinese students were a security threat, potential spies promoting Communist Party propaganda on our campuses. Um, so I formed the view from my contact with them. Um, 
that they're pretty uninterested in politics as it happens. But, by the way, let it quickly be said, there'd be nothing wrong if they did express in this democracy we call Australia a pro-communist view in yeah. a discussion, in a lecture hall or a tutorial. We're big enough to accommodate that. We don't have to be protected against that. Yeah, look, and that's the exact point that Universities Australia made. They sort of said, look, we need to keep this in perspective. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a Chinese student to raise their point of view, and an Australian lecturer can raise their point of view in response. If we can't do that in the university, Bob, then, um, then we're in real trouble. Um, and the trouble's not coming from Chinese students. Um, yeah, and look, in this report I also quote uh, experts, people who've actually spoken to Chinese students. It was stunning to me that in all that raft of commentary uh, using language such as Chinese students are waging a war, attacking, um, not once was a Chinese student actually interviewed. Extraordinary. Now, there's Australian academics who've done some very serious research with Chinese students. I think of Fran Martin from the University of Melbourne, Wan Ning Sun from this university. They've taken the time to speak to Chinese students, um, and they will both tell you very, very clearly that Chinese students are not brainwashed. They're not stooges of the Chinese Communist Party. They're quite capable of forming their own views. Yeah, I've met a few of them. Um, not many at this on this campus. I've met um, uh, many from the University of Sydney, and they're certainly not agitated, uh, agitated about politics. They've got a range of, of views. There's one of them, for example, a PhD student who's writing an article arguing that Australia's tilt against China, that is 2017 tilt against China, could be argued to be in Australia's interest. There's a diversity of views that come from these students, and I, I think we're honoured that they're studying in Australia when they could be studying in the UK or the US or somewhere else. Um, Let's take a final example. Um, I was mesmerised by a week's headlines in the Sydney Morning Herald alleging the Chinese were well advanced with plans for a naval base in Vanuatu. Um, I was sceptical because I know that China's only got one overseas base. It's in Djibouti and there to service Chinese um, activities in Africa, peacekeeping in Africa under UN auspices. And uh, anti-piracy operations in that uh, in that maritime area. Um, the idea that the, there was going to be the number two Chinese base in the entire world, located down here in the Southwest Pacific, a long way from China's sea lanes of communication, so vital to China, was somewhat astonishing. Well, it was astonishing to Vanuatu as well, Bob. I mean, area studies specialists, that is the academic community in Australia who specialise in the study of the Pacific Island countries, they immediately pointed out the fact that Vanuatu is a committed member of the non-aligned movement. Well, it'd be a pretty unusual step for a committed member of the non-aligned movement to suddenly offer up their territory as a base for the Chinese military. Um, and certainly other academics also raised the point you did, that it wasn't at all clear what China's strategic interests were. Um, some academics said that it was really only fish. Um, Graham Smith from the Australian National University, a Pacific Island expert, he declared that having looked at the evidence, um, that the current version of this tale looks baseless. Um, yeah, absolutely baseless, um, as opposed to some other instances, which you can see might have a modest base, um, or a serious base. But um, in this case, I agree with you. I can't find any basis for it when the government of Vanuatu itself and Canberra and the, the Australian federal government 
say that um, there's no evidence of this whatsoever. Nonetheless, the the headlines were pretty dramatic. Yeah, and Bob, it's not just the journos we're talking about here too. So we've got Graham Smith, the academic, saying the current version of this tale looks baseless. Uh, but it's not just the journalists writing these headlines. We also have Peter Jennings, who's the executive director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, come out and say, and I quote, it is certain, it is certain that China is looking to establish a military base in Vanuatu. Well, that's not what the facts and evidence say. Is China panic inevitable given that the rise of China is so dramatic, so concentrated and so challenging for an old-fashioned white Australia view of the world, this continent and its security. We're used to being in the British Empire and after that being in the US alliance system with a comfortable relationship with Japan, which has roughly comparable values with our own. Is it inevitable that China being so different should set off these waves of panic, angst, concern, agitation in Australia? Look, I'd hope it's not inevitable. As I said before, if we're talking about the China challenges, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say everything's a China panic, right? I mean, I want to be clear on that. I think there are real challenges. So it doesn't surprise me that China's rise uh, inevitably raises challenges. But yeah, it does go beyond that, as this report documents. And perhaps for some sections of our community, perhaps particularly for the strategic and the defence community, maybe it is inevitable. I mean, one statistic I saw recently that um, would come as quite a shock to that community was that China now accounts for 19% of global purchasing power. Australia accounts for 1%. So faced with a country not too far to our north, with that degree of purchasing power difference, um, that is going to come as a shock. Uh, and unfortunately, it looks like at the moment the way some parts of, the, of Australia and the commentariat are reacting to that shock is with angst, panic and envisaging China as a threat. And what does it mean for Australia, Australian policy on China that we've got these waves of, of agitation? Yeah, but I think for me what it means is that it actually makes it harder to respond to the genuine challenges um, because all these other issues gets conflated, get conflated. Um, so, so, so a serious response, a considered response, actually becomes more difficult. I mean, I'd look in the, in the, in the Pacific Islands as a, as a classic case. It seems to me at the moment uh, we see China as China is being viewed as a threat in those islands when in fact um, there's nothing really stopping Australia from working with China in those islands. Um, the islands themselves say they desperately need infrastructure. Well, China's happy to have that conversation with them. So is Australia. Um, instead, we seem to be setting ourselves up in opposition um, when we could be cooperating with China in that particular context. So that's just one example of where we've taken on a particular narrative and it actually makes responding in a more productive way, um, better off for the Pacific Islands and better off for our bilateral relationship with China um, if, if we adopted a cooperative approach rather than the approach we have taken. Well, thank you, James. James Lawrenson, Deputy Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute here at UTS. Um, congratulations on the report. And it is available, I encourage listeners to read it on our website, australiachinarelations.org. Uh, the report entitled, Do the Claims Stack Up? Australia Talks China by Professor James Lawrenson. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the Acri podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find all episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There you'll also find out more about Acri's research and events. 
And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS. Thanks for listening. Thank you.